Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ann Sebi. Uh, we're at uh, Westmount uh, slash Highland slash Northwest Wine Company in Dundee. It's April 15th, 2021. Ann, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, first question, the most important question for you is why wine? Um, it was somewhat of a given. Uh, I mean, not that it, it didn't just happen, but my parents were just passionate about wine. Um, my dad started going into in Burgundy when he was 17. And as soon as I was born, they just took me and my brother just to Burgundy. And at five years old, I was just already just roaming through the cellars, just while they were doing wine tasting. And it was always just like, they, if we were just nice and behaving during wine tasting, they would take us just have an ice cream after or just do something for us because we had a mandatory wine tasting every day at some point during our holidays. So that was every summer in Burgundy growing up. Because I grew up in a, I was born and grew up in a small French island in the Indian Ocean. So not on mainland France and going to Burgundy was just a big event every year. So let's talk about growing up. Uh, you were born in? Reunion Island. Okay. And, and tell me about kind of growing up there and about, about life there before you got into before wine. Before going for to Fugio, wine, yes. it was great. It was just a tropical island. So imagine Hawaii. Just it's, it's very similar to Hawaii, so I've been told. Uh, beach and just warm weather, tropical fruit, just sunny all the time, warm all the time, lots of rain. So very different from just, the, yeah, my, my first winter in Burgundy was when I went to college. That was rough. That was the hardest thing. Not missing my parents was one thing, but just seeing the gray sky for days and weeks mm -hmm. and months. It was just very hard. So you mentioned growing up around wine. Tell me, tell me about that. And was it always something you thought you would do professionally? No, just uh, when I was just little, I wanted to be a baker, and just uh, and that's still just what my parents were encouraging me to do. Just like whatever I wanted to do, and just I've been passionate about baking and pastry and all that. Um, but then in summer of 1999, I was just 14, and um, I was ended up just helping a friend of my parents just working in a vineyard because. I had some time, they needed some help just to go and do some uh, green pass in the vineyard and just I spent a week maybe just working there. And after that I was like, okay, working in the vineyard is awesome, I just want to do that. <laughs> uh, and I was in middle school at the time and that's just when I just started just to tailor my education just to go and mm -hmm. uh, go into winemaking eventually. So tell me about that, tell me about tailoring, tailoring, tailoring your education that way. Um, so there's several options in France. If you want to go into winemaking, vineyard managing, you can start at 16 um, in high school, which was not a possibility for me because living in the island, we didn't have a winemaking school at the time. Well, still not really. Um, or just doing a uh, study after mm -hmm. high school. So that was just going to be after high school no matter what. Uh, but my parents wanted just me to go as far as possible in education, so just to aim for engineering first and then just do winemaking at the same time. And it just so happened that there is just an engineering degree that is just also specialized in vineyard management and winemaking. So I did a prep school first in Dijon and just uh, went to Bordeaux mm -hmm. in that engineering school. Uh, 
and did in parallel just a winemaking degree there. I'm curious what's what's involved in that and what what about that was most intriguing to you? What, what part of the wine process was exciting to you? Um, so funnily enough, I didn't think I was going to... Like making wine was not my goal. Growing grapes was my goal. Uh, I've always been an outdoor person, just gardening, being outside, just seeing, just... Like growing things was something that I've always just found fascinating. My dad would just always just show me like how to multiply plants, divide, just take cuttings. Like we'd always be in our neighbors like, oh, I like that plant. My mom was like, well, just can we have little cuttings and we'll just do. And that's all I just saw them just doing growing up. So growing things was always my passion. Mm -hmm. And then just understanding just after working that first summer in the vineyard, understanding how complicated uh, complicated and just hard it was to grow the perfect grape and how much effort went into just getting that perfect perfect grape was just what I went after um, I mean you know just like making wine just growing these grapes um, it takes at least eight to ten passes per vine mm -hmm. to end up just getting the grapes that we want at the end of uh, the season so you get to touch individual vines at eight to ten times every year there's so much detail just to it that i found that just fascinating and and i never thought about just the how repetitive that would be how hard that would be it was just during the summer everything is wonderful during the summer <laughs> uh, but that being said just after that i started working in the vineyard every year and it's it's hard the first few days are heartbreaking because it's the vineyard in Burgundy are a little lower than here, so it's one foot up the ground. Uh, you bend over, and I'm not particularly tall, but I'm not small either. So you just bend over just for your whole day, and just you keep squatting up and down. Like my legs were killed, my back was killed, and I was 14, 15, so not even that old. Um, but then just you, I just like just the the. the how physical it was and how just soothing it was just to repeat things one after the other and each vine is different so you get to think every time it's not just like you're not mechanically just keeping doing the same thing you're not a machine you just see how the plant is and you just quickly assess it and just just do what you have to do in each vine and and that was just very interesting for me Tell me about that process of, of you mentioned it's not, not not like mechanical in terms of just doing the same thing over and over. Tell me about getting to know the vines in that way and getting to learn what, what each one needed. Um, it, it was, it took a while. Um, I had just uh, that friend of my parents who was just teaching me. She was uh, a nurse and at the same time she was the one just doing all the vineyard work at her husband's estate. Uh, and she was older at the time. Like she was probably in her late 50s, yeah, in 1999. She was just not young, but every day she would just go in the vineyard. She would just go see her patient because she was a that kind of nurse in France that just go does visit in the morning, mm -hmm. visit in the evening, go see her patient, come back. Uh, I would just meet her in the vineyard, we just work all day. She would just fix lunch, which is like <laughs> always a big spread for lunch. And then just, uh, yeah, just go back in the afternoon and she would just go and see her patient. And uh, so she taught me everything about just working in the vineyard. and. In, in a very non-scientific way, really, because she had learned from her husband, who had learned from his father, who had learned from his grandfather. So that was just a lot of observation, just knowing, having doing, done that for 40, 45 years, just knowing exactly how to tailor that vine, but in a very empirical way, mm -hmm. uh, which I found fascinating because I have a deep respect for science and I love just like the scientific part of just growing any things or making wine but i also just find it fascinating when people just manage just to 
to have that knowledge without knowing the science and just just by observation and just having worked the same the same 25 acres their whole life it's they've just owned this vineyard forever they know each vine they know each block they know each specificity of each side of the vineyard so that was just very fascinating i'm curious as you as your studies continued and you had that kind of real world i've been in the vineyard versus kind of this more scientific studies <laughs> Tell about how they balanced for you and how you kind of balance the idea of sort of observation and instinct versus scientific and engineering. It's, I think they just complement themselves really well. It's working back in Burgundy, I've never really, I was just using my scientific just knowledge to understand why they were doing things the way they were doing. Um, and sometimes I would just find like, yeah, it doesn't really make logical sense for them to be doing it, but yet it seems to be working. <laughs> and so I would never, I would never dare say anything, you know, as them bitches being much older, just, I was never just going to bring it up. Well, it's cool. We didn't just learn to do it this way. That being said, coming to Oregon in a much younger vineyard where people don't know necessarily the vineyard as much or just have a lot of newer plantation, new site, new vineyard, just three-year-old vine. This is where just the, the science comes in. This is where just the education just is very useful, very important. Uh, and same thing goes into winemaking, I find. Just anyone can make wine. Like you don't, it's not like being a doctor. You can't just go and just start operating on someone, but you can't just go and just start making wine. And we see that every day, people who didn't study wine who end up being winemakers. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong about it. Anyone can make wine, anyone can make great wines. But then when there is a problem, when there's something that requires a more scientific just enter, um, understanding of why there is a problem, that's where just I think there's a difference between people who got educated in it and not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And same goes to vineyard. It's just like it's, it's when you don't know anything, you don't have any background on that vineyard, that you just need to start just using your knowledge and not so much your observation skills. Mm -hmm. So for you, tell me about the, when you come to a new vineyard, whether it's in Oregon or elsewhere, tell me about the process for you of, of getting to know a vineyard and, and how long until you feel comfortable kind of knowing your terroir? It's, there is a, there's some vineyards I've been comfortable just within a year of just, because everything just like the vineyard just looks just very standard. You just kind of see something very homogenous, just the vigor is like, as long as everything is, seems, Average, average in a good way. Mm -hmm. Like nothing too vigorous, nothing just too, uh, too thin, too too small, just too struggling. Uh, I get just comfortable fairly quickly. Just knowing that we'll make a decent wine, not necessarily just making the best wine, but just making something that is going to be good. Um, when things, when vineyards are very um, non-homogenous, when you have some very struggling parts, some part that I've been neglected that's just when it takes it takes a while mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's some vineyards been working with for five six years and there's just some blocks we just don't know we don't know just why why they're behaving that way and I'm sure if we're just digging entirely and just going and just doing a bunch of analysis we'll figure it out mm -hmm. but just like just observing it it's just not mm -hmm, not mm -hmm, enough mm -hmm. so we talked about your education process tell me about for you uh, how far did the education process go and then and what came next uh, so just, I got just the equivalent of a bachelor in, in science, so just, that was math, physics, chemistry, biology, um, and after that did the uh, engineering school, uh, which the first year was just very, very large, just agriculture, I did a lot of uh, 
animal husbandry and all that, which I just could not bear. Just knowing how to feed dairy cows just was boring me so much. It was just very, very hard. Um, as soon as we were starting just to talk about apple trees or cherry trees, I was like, yes, please give me some plants. Just no cows, no goat, no foie gras. Just like, that was a big thing in Bordeaux. Just knowing how to feed just ducks for foie gras. It's like great, loving to learn that, but just like 25 hours of it is way too much. No, I just can't do that. Anyway, so I had to pass them to be able to go to the next step. So uh, I ended up not necessarily just yeah, mastering them really, but I had, I had just, I was very focused. I wanted to, to grow grapes, make wine and learn everything about just uh, wine making and, and vineyard growing. Um, so yeah, after, so I just did a master's, um, mm -hmm. both in viticulture and winemaking. Mm -hmm. And right after that, I wanted to go and do an internship uh, abroad. So the great things about just that uh, education in France is they force you to uh, do internship throughout. So I just I was able to do harvest for my uh, five years of education and see also different part of um, like different season. Also, they just make sure that you hit a little bit of mm -hmm. all of the seasons. Um, I did not, I did one harvest in Bordeaux, but just, that was just because of logistic. Uh, I made a point of going back to Burgundy every year, which was not pleasing my teachers so much. Being all from Bordeaux, they were just all realistic. Like, you have the opportunity to go to all these nice chateaux in Bordeaux, why do you go back to Burgundy? It's like, why wouldn't I? <laughs> I've always thought, I had one focus that was not only making wine, but I wanted to make Pinot and Chardonnay. And I thought if you had, asked me that 15 years ago I thought I was gonna be making wine in Burgundy living in Burgundy dying in Burgundy and that was just it there was just no other option I could not fathom any other places just to live mm -hmm. so I was not gonna waste time just trying to make cab trying to discover anything about Sauvignon Blanc or anything just like regardless of what my teacher would say <laughs> uh, and here I am making some cab in Riesling and just <laughs> not, not always a little bit <laughs> and definitely not in Burgundy but just uh, almost so yeah, after after college, just did an internship uh, here. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to a place that was making Pinot Noir and that was English speaking. Just okay. so I just wanted to get one stab at just working in an English speaking place. I had never been, uh, I've never worked abroad, so that was the occasion. Mm -hmm. um, and some friend of mine in uh, Burgundy just suggested to come here. He had been to the IPNC, really loved Oregon, just said, just check out Oregon. Um, I know a guy there who makes wine. I have his contact, I can call him, and I was my kid's so oddball frere. So I came here in 2008. A pretty interesting first place to land in Ooh, Oregon. Yes. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. It was the first time in the US. It was great. So I have to say, it's like I only have good memories of it. But yeah, it was a little strange. And, and I was living at their place. So just that first week, just living in some other people's place i didn't really know them didn't I, sp I spoke english but you know just like it took me a little just while to adjust mike is crazy <laughs> in a good way but still crazy jackie's late life wife was the same super nice and i think she was so happy to have another woman in the house having raised three boys she was just like she was so sweet to me but in a little bit of a crazy way too it's just and but at the same time i knew i was coming in the u.s and and I'm going to be judgmental here, but just coming from France, I was like, Americans are a little crazy. <laughs> so I need to expect a little bit of craziness. And I was back in the days when we didn't have smart, well, at least I didn't have a smartphone. You couldn't just call France that easily. So I was in very limited communication with my parents. 
So that was just also terrifying them. Um, it was, yeah, I was so tired that first week having to adapt to living a new life, living with a new family. Like they took me in just like I was their daughter, which was awesome. But it was just very strange, mm -hmm. yeah. What were the biggest, uh, in, in wine terms or in vineyard terms, what were the biggest like cultural differences for you? What was different about Oregon wine versus where you had been before? Um, and the attention to cleanliness. I was not used to have to clean things so much all the time to take pumps apart, hoses apart. I had to take hoses apart every night and put them back together every morning. Every places that worked in France, they didn't even have hot water in the cellar. That's just how I was rinsing it, putting it back on the wall. We only had one pump that was just for pump over. Everything else was done by gravity, by lifting a forklift, moving, like not even with high tech. Uh, so that was more, and not that Beaufort is high tech by any means, but it's definitely more thought out. It's not just like put together by decades and decades or centuries of just stuff built on top of each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the cleanliness and everything had to be so perfect that was just, I was not used to it. Mm -hmm. um, and then just the uh, hospitality side of things. It was just also very strange just to see tasting room, to have people coming and just pay to taste wine. I was like, what are they doing? Why do they just, yeah, $20 to taste just, I don't, I didn't know what it was. I, I grew up just going tasting wine in cellars and you would just taste with a winemaker in the barrel room, just out of barrels. You didn't just open wine and having someone in hospitality person pouring wine for you. Mm -hmm. So that was just, yeah, definitely that first time I went to a tasting room, I was like, oh, that is different. <laughs> it was just, yeah, a little, a little different. And other than that, just, I think that's why I liked it so much. It just felt very similar in the attention that they, they were putting into the vineyard. Mm -hmm. uh, they were just very, everything was done for a purpose. Mm -hmm. and, and frankly, what shocked me is the amount of science that people were just putting into everything. I remember the first time someone told me why we're putting citric in, in KMBS to rinse equipment. It's like, well, you want to lower the pH because the KMBS is more effective. And I was like, that is a lot of thought put into just cleaning a hose. Like, it, it was just a little too much for me. Like, everything was just done for such a detail, like such a level of detail that I was just, uh, I was surprised. There's a lot less room for um, empiricism, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I do find, I'm still just amused sometimes just to hear people in the wine industry who, when you taste, when you make the wine, who have just to put yeah, so much science into what they do and just, I feel like they don't, so the words are always so complicated. Just they, they, they try to pinpoint exactly to have the perfect term or as opposed to just, I don't know, being a bit more casual about mm -hmm. it. Interesting. And there's a big difference when, when we taste. So at the winery, we're four winemakers, three of us are French. Mm -hmm. And we often, when we taste with other winemakers, we just, yeah, are so, they think so much about everything. And we just look at each other. It's like, why is he spending so much time thinking about that? It's just, I do not know. It's just like, there's, I don't know. Not, not that you shouldn't be serious about what you're doing, but there's a moment when there's just, it's too intellectual. There's just like, it's wine. You got to live it. You got just to, you make it, you live it, you drink it. It's just, you don't just stress about it. <laughs> You seem to have a very a well-honed instinct for that. Maybe that's maybe that's something that, that, that the French have that we don't have yet. Yeah, maybe. Or just I think in general we tend to be less technical. Mm 
uh, which is not always a good thing. I'm not saying that's how it should be, but it's, it's definitely a cultural difference. Mm -hmm. You go and talk to winemakers, yeah, a lot of time they won't know the specific of what they're doing and they're just doing it because it works to make their wine. Uh, no need just to, yeah, to see oh, how much, how often do you gas your barrels or how long do you leave your barrel on ozone to rinse it. It's just like there's so much, so much just, yeah, thought put into every little thing. Mm -hmm. So other, I'm curious about other memories from that, from that year and, and, and at, at that point, uh, what, did you want to come back to Oregon when you were finished? So that was, I was just here for eight weeks mm -hmm. and two weeks before the end of um, my internship, I told Mike, it's like, Mike, I really like it here. Do you think anyone would be looking for someone? And he was like, well, let's just see. I might just talk to a few people. And it took me to Salud, which was back in the days at Domenjuan. Uh, that was that big tasting. And, and you know how it is, it's crazy. All the winemakers are there. There's a lot of people. And first he introduced me to Veronique Drouin. And he was like, Veronique, just there and just, and I talked to her and she's like, well, Laurent is here and he's looking for an assistant winemaker for his next project. Just, do you mind talking to him? And Laurent's like, well, can you meet tomorrow at the winery that was the Northwest Wine at nine o'clock? I was like, yes, my flight leaving on Sunday. So the day after I'll come. And we had a quick interview and he was like, yeah, let's just, let's just, we call just the immigration uh, company that we use for uh, interns. And Laurie was like, yeah, you just need to go back to France and just sort out the documents and you should be able to come back. Uh, yeah, and Laurie was just, yeah, just come back when you can get a visa, which took a couple of months. But. And I was here in January 2009, started for a, uh, uh, Selena. I was the assistant winemaker for Selena and Grand Cru Estates at the time. So that was a new facility he had built in Yamhill. So what about the, the, the first six weeks or so of, of your work here made you want to stay or made you want to come back or, and, and uh, ch change your plans? Hard to, hard to pinpoint. There's just like an atmosphere in the wine industry. Like people were so enthusiastic. Like I could feel the enthusiasm just like at the time, there was pre-harvest party everywhere. People knew each other, and and Broken is great, and people are really nice, but they don't necessarily just cohabitate that cohabit that much. You know what? I mean? They've been just there their whole life. There is they don't necessarily know their neighbors, or they do, but they don't hang out with them. Um, the wine industry is not as much of a community because it's a large part of just people. So when here, it's a smaller group of people mm -hmm. and just people like to gather and drink about, drink wine, talk about wine, just talk about food. Um, and, and I'm gonna sound like an old person, but 12 years ago, 13 years ago, things were very different. Things were that much smaller. People even knew each other that much more. And I feel like, yeah, I was surprised to see the community and just, mm -hmm. I, I loved it. Mm -hmm. Just saying, just, all these people are just starting or been a lot of people had not been there for that long um, I was even told by Mike that just most Oregonian are not from Oregon and I discovered that yes it is true it's just like it is a legitimate question to say oh where are you from and most of the time it's not gonna be from around here um, and I just I love that about it and plus you know fall in Oregon it's hard not to love it So at that point, you're, you you got hired at Selena. So tell me about, actually, before we get to that, tell me about your impressions of Oregon wine. Once you first had it, what 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 were your impressions of the wines that you that you first had and of the people you met who were making them? Um, 
I f the wines were really different. It was. It took me a while to get used to them. Um, I was not used to higher alcohol Pinots. Um, at that time, Burgundy was still producing just 12.5%. 13 was kind of a rare occurrence. Um, and, and everything seems just a lot warmer, a lot darker, just dark food. I was missing the, the acidity, and especially working at Beaufrere, just might just tend to like just, just riper fruit, uh, lower acidity wine. So it was a different profile. As much as I fell in love with the region, the wines was not just like the main thing. It's like, oh, the wine is so good. That's what I want to do mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, I guess it was not that important to me. It's just the making of the wine is more important than the drinking of the wine somehow. And I know it sounds a little sad. I just, I like drinking wine, but I'm more fascinated by the, the making of it, mm -hmm. the, the, the process than mm -hmm. just actually mm -hmm. drinking. That's why we have customers. They're the one interested in the drinking <laughs> of it. <laughs> So up to this point, you had been kind of more focused on the viticulture part of things mm -hmm. and less on the winemaking. So you, you accepted a job as assistant winemaker. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what that role was and was it something you wanted to pursue at that point or were you still hoping to get back to be more of a, in the viticulture? So I, had, so I was very into viticulture until college when I realized that um, there is more position as a woman just in winemaking than there is in viticulture. Uh, especially in France, it was going to be a hard thing just to be able to have a, um, a high-level position in the vineyard. It's just still not that common when just wine in winemaking it's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So I shifted a little bit my view on things, just knowing that once I'm in the winery, I can still just do some viticulture, or just if it's a winery small enough, you just I'll be able to do both. Mm -hmm. So I did just. Um, a few harvests. I, I, I did enough just cellar work that I was just very comfortable just making wine. Mm -hmm. I mean, making wine. Let's. I was still not a winemaker, but I was comfortable working in the cellar. Uh, and just and I knew too that just and especially here, uh, vineyard work. It's not like in France. It's a small winery in France. The the owner will be doing the vineyard work. Uh, here, not so much. You just have workers who do the vineyard work. Mm -hmm. So and I. I miss it, but I don't miss it at the same In 2011, I went back to France for a year for visa reason. And I went back to work for my friends and I was spending 80% of my time in the vineyard, 20 in the cellar just to do small tasks mm -hmm. throughout the week, throughout the year. Um, and that comes from the fact that I love vineyard work, but it's hard work and I don't know if I could do that years in and year out. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's wearing just doing that. I, I was young, just like doing that late in life might just have been a lot harder. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I knew it was going to be just, yeah. It, it was very likely that I was going to end up just working in the cellar. Mm -hmm. um, so starting working for Selena, it's, uh, it was very slow at first. The one year was still being built when I arrived. so. We had about 80, 90 barrels at the time. So I was just doing topping, doing analysis, inputting everything into a new database. So a lot of just um, paperwork. Um, and Laurent just uh, gave me the task of visiting all the vineyards who were just buying fruit from, which at the time was a lot. <laughs> I had to design just to make sure I had maps from all the, the growers who were just buying and just direction. So I had just to make a binder. So anyone in the company could just grab the binder and just go and visit a vineyard. So that allowed me to visit all, all 50 vineyards in the Willamette Valley, which was awesome. My first year here, I just drove everywhere. I drove everywhere, had the map of the vineyard, which just walked the rows and just got familiar with just so many vineyards. Mm -hmm. uh, that was definitely amazing. Mm -hmm. 
So tell me about the, the, the as, as you grew into that position and as Selena grew, tell me about the, the, the style of wine that you were making and, and the kind of the, the philosophy behind it for you, your wine, the kind of winemaking philosophy. Mm -hmm. was, it, was it something that you had developed or was it mostly coming from Laurent and, and kind of what was your philosophy so like that at was, that point? That was both. So Laurent, um, I went through the same school as Laurent, so we were just trained just in a very similar manners. Um, which is intervene when you have to, don't if you don't have to. Um, and fortunately, the first couple of years I was working for Laurent was 2009 and 2010, which were fairly easy vintages. Um, nine was a little late, but really ripe. 10 was a little later, but still just really nice. No, no real challenge to have. Um, and he's really big into um, making sure that just the picking decision is the most important thing. So once you pick at the right time, then mm -hmm. there's really not that much to do afterward. Um, and we didn't have, and that's something I was used to before in France and something that he, he also does. It's like we didn't have a strict um, protocol for winemaking. Like we don't, have, to this day, we have clients who ask us, hey, do you have a protocol for winemaking? We, we don't, we have general ideas of how we want to do things, but it really depends on the batch, on the vineyard, on the very just, we have just to see the wine. And um, one thing that I wasn't used to and that he's very adamant on is just tasting fermenters every day. Mm -hmm. Every fermenter is tasted every day. Um, and that's a lot of work just pulling samples, but at the same time, we know each fermenter, we know where the wine is going and we make decisions based on how we taste. Mm -hmm. So there is no, no two fermenters is treated the same way. We just make decision on what type of extraction we're going to do, how long the extraction, how often do we skip, when do we press, do we, like everything is just based on how the wine tastes and not so much on how we want to make the wine. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's that's awesome interesting the winemaking perspective it's that goes back to what i was saying about just feeling the wine and not so much about just knowing and imposing just the way we want to make the wine mm -hmm. same thing with anything else like acid correction anything we just we don't we look at numbers um and then when the numbers are a little bit out of range that's when we're like okay we need to do something if not just like well it's a little high but let's just write with it and we'll see a little passive but it's mostly just uh, what you know, we make fun of French people when they say well, French coopers when they say that their barrels respect the fruit. Um, they always say that it's like, oh, our barrels is great, it's just it's there and it's respecting the fruit. But that's exactly what we're doing. It's like the fruit's coming, it's there. The guys did a great job in the vineyard. Now let's just try to see what we can do with it without just changing it too much. Now that being said, difficult vintages like 13 or 11 when they need a bit more work, well then we intervene when we have to. I want to ask you. You were mentioning 20, 2009 and 10 as mm -hmm. your first vintages, and then of course 2011 is kind of legendarily mm -hmm. difficult vintage. Tell me about that one from your perspective. What what did you have to do that vintage that was different? What did you kind of learn from 2011? So 11 was just a nice vintage because I was in Burgundy that year. <laughs> oh, uh, I came back in 12 though and had to deal with 11 because <laughs> I came back working for Laurent Northwest Wine Company and. Um, my other colleague that's left so i was just new and left no one was there it's just like a little bit of a staff change then uh and i was like what is that it's like the acid was up the roof i came and there's so ml was not finished like a lot of lot were just a little on the ripe. i mean just like everyone in 11 just we're just struggling just a lot of reduction issues um it was cold and 
Uh, yeah, things just definitely was not the best vintage to be landing back to uh, Oregon for. Um, but you know, Laurent was just like, well, let's just see how we can help the wine, just set up a bunch of trial and then we'll just, we'll see how it goes. And eventually um, we managed to mitigate a little bit just that, that lack of ripeness. And, and we had some great vineyards to work with. And, and on some other vineyards like Highland, we embraced that, that acidity just, and it took a long time for the wine to be ready to be drunk. But once it was, it was great. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you'd left and you came back and now you're working for Northwest Wines. So how had your role changed in the kind of the interim there from when you when you left to go back to Burgundy and, and came back? Uh, well, just the size of the facility. I left uh, Selena and we were making almost 300 tons at a time and came back at 1800 tons for Northwest. Uh, I was coming back from a friend's winery and we we're making 80 tons in Burgundy. And yeah, that first vintage was very stressful. Um, and again, because there was just not any continuity between the previous seller uh, staff and me, and I had just um, my, uh, my colleague who was just the assistant winemaker here at the time. Uh, so I came back as an assistant winemaker as well, and she quit because she just had the baby. And so I was just like, first harvest, big facility. It was just, it was stressful. Um, and just and then it just it worked like Laurent Robert were just working on the sorting line just during harvest and I was just managing more of the lab and just uh, distributing the work to the interns had to hire my first interns too that was different I was still really young and just trying to interview people it's just like uh, I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> interviewing just by internet because they were international and so I mostly interned just French that year it's like yep <laughs> you're French you're coming in <laughs> Uh, I can't really deal with too many people not speaking the language. It was just like, nope. Uh, and it worked out great. It just, again, it was a lot of work. I just finishing at midnight every day and just, mm -hmm. um, it, I only have just good memories of it. And then when harvest was over, it was just long. I was like, wow, do you want to be a winemaker? And it's like, yeah, yeah I'll just do it. Mm -hmm. It was just, there is so much to learn going from a small place to a big place. Mm -hmm. Just all filters I had never used before and all that just, mm -hmm. uh, we talked, we obviously, you know, we interviewed Brian last week mm -hmm. and he talked about it. So, sort of a similar situation for him. Tell me about that learning curve for you of, of getting used to a facility of this size and, and kind of uh, the logistics of the of the of all the different things that are going on here. Yeah, um, so the, the difference between Brian and I is I started when Northwest was still not as big as it was. He came just five years later and by that point we had grown like threefold. So, um, yeah, when I, when I started we didn't have, we, nearly as many tanks as we do now and um, you know I didn't really ask myself much question there's like we have plenty of wine we need to bottle them we're gonna need to filter them and we're filtering overnight and during the weekend and all that it's like it had to be done mm -hmm. um, and I'm really logistic minded and that's just really when it kicked in I didn't realize that I was just that interested in just making things just work smoothly mm -hmm. uh, until I had to and and that's one thing I just still pride myself in, is just being organized enough to be able just to, to run a big show without just having to work too hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we never had to work 24 hours. We don't do two shifts. We don't. We still just work like almost, we work less than small wineries. I was doing more hours at Beaufort than I'm doing here, but it's just a matter of just being organized and putting people in the right place and just, having more process in place and making sure yeah that everyone is trained correctly and at the right place and and I get along really well with just the vineyard management team uh, 
and it's a matter of also just planning the fruit just being always in constant communication like Bruno and I we text and call each other during a harvest maybe 30 times a day it's first thing he does in the morning he calls me on his way in and I call him and he's like okay when do you want the first fruit how much can it take today and then if clients send some wines and some grapes and they're like hey Bruno can you cancel that pick tonight because we didn't get oh the press is broken so we it's it's all that and it's just it's a, a well oil machine it's just because we managed to communicate and we just organize and we've worked together for a long time. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the, the growth of Northwest wines and you've been here obviously a, 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 huge, a huge producer now of Oregon wine. Tell me about the, the work with the kind of the outside clients. How, how does that work for you and how do you balance sort of everyone's needs simultaneously? Um, so luckily a lot of our small clients um, are just vineyard owners and brand owners so they own a vineyard but we we manage the vineyard so we make all the decisions from picking to winemaking until it's in bottle pretty much mm -hmm. and of course they intervene just in the style of wine they want the blends they want and all that but we have a lot of room mm -hmm. so that allows us to make decision and not have just to wait on them to make decisions mm -hmm. uh, a couple of other clients are just bigger or just they have their own winemakers and it's an adjustment just to have to to deal with people's style of mm -hmm. winemaking it doesn't necessarily um, match what we're doing and we have just the extreme so we have some people who just don't want to do anything to their wine you don't add anything you don't you just do pump overs twice a day and that's it like you never ha add anything and the other extreme when you just add everything on this planet that exists just to to at the end, and, and that's just the beauty of it, is being able just to work with other people mm -hmm. and just knowing at the end that we're doing the right thing because we're not being too crazy about anything. Because at the end, their wines are equally good. Mm -hmm. It's just like different style, but they're all making a good wine, except that just they decide to take very opposite approach. So we're definitely learning from, from clients. Mm -hmm. It's like there's, there's, yeah, there's a good things in, in all approaches. Mm -hmm. But ours is better <laughs> <laughs> because, it, because it fits what we want to do, you know, it's just like that's it's uh, yeah, you have to just to make sure that like, it works with just everything in your winery. <laughs> you obviously we talked about Laurent and Bruno, kind of the, the, the their mentors here. Tell me about the relationship with them and, and, and getting to getting that kind of working relationship where you get to the point where you're cohesive, okay. like you talked about. Tell, what, what are their styles like and how do they coincide with your style? Mm -hmm. Uh, Bruno is very picky and nitpicky about everything. He is funny just because he makes wine also for himself now. He wants to do so many trials every time. We just, every time, like I know now before we bottle his wine, like I need to warn him a month ahead. It's like, hey, we're going to bottle your wine. What do you want to try? <laughs> and we try everything. And every single time is to finish just saying, oh no, I don't want to do anything. It's like, well, we still have to try. It's like, well, yeah, but after six years, Bruno, you should know that we tried everything. We're not going to add anything. So, okay, but why not? I mean, he likes just to have all the options just to make sure he's making the right decision. Uh, but he's very detail-oriented and he's an amazing taster. Uh, yeah, anytime just we have something that is not conclusive or Brian and I can't agree on something, we just call Bruno. It's mm -hmm. like, Bruno, can you please be the tiebreaker? And it's just, uh, yeah, because he has an amazing palate. He knows what he likes. He knows what he wants. Um, and, and yeah, his brain goes into all kind of direction, but we get along just great together. Um, Laurent is just very different. He's just more just like, hey, if you want to take that off my plate, I'll let you. <laughs> and that was, and I think that's why, um, 
it was stressful but at the same time why i liked it so much working for him is because i had so much leeway as long as i was not making any mistake he was just like do the things the way you want but he never really said he never said that but he would just not give me any direction it was just like nothing and then one year just that was maybe a couple of years after i started and i was like hey Laurent, can you mind just approving the barrel ordering we need to review what we need to do this year it's like oh you can do it you've been doing it for two years just go ahead it's like, what, do you want to review the budget? It's like, no, just go ahead. It's like, oh, okay. So it was just like very, very trusting. And again, just as long as just, just, you don't let him down, it's just like, you go for it. And winemaking was the same, as long as the wine was tasting fine. He insisted on tasting everything, but if he was happy with it, that was it. There's no detail. He did not want to know the detail, it's just like, at no point was just like, oh, do I, I wanted to filter this first and then second, I'd like to try this or that. It's like, oh, no, just you do it. Just show me the result. <laughs> if I don't like it, I'll let you know. So that was just pretty amazing. Uh, I don't know if it was because he was ready to let it go or if it just, he was just like, hey, at least one last thing I have to think about, just like someone is doing it for me. That's fine. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting pair. I'm, I'm uh, an interesting pair for you to learn from. Oh yeah, and but you know how much you learn from just having someone just over you constantly, just questioning why you're doing something. I mean, it was just pretty amazing. It's uh, I'm I'm very independent, um, but at the same time I know my limits. So anytime I had just a doubt on what to do, I would ask him or just ask Bruno, and they'd just always be there just to guide me. But definitely Laurent more just uh, just like hey, sure. I mean, you know as much as I do, just go for it, yeah. Tell me about the, the evolution of your role then since you came back, uh, since you've been in Northwest Wine. Uh, have you been doing basically what, you've, what you're doing now from the start or has, has your role changed here? Uh, I mean, just taking more and more responsibilities, just having a more direct contact with clients now than I was at the beginning. It used to go 100% through Laurent and now it's just like, I just I deal with them just more directly. Um, same thing with just uh, suppliers and all that. Just like small detail that I just took more ownership on. Um, being a bit more involved on the cost and the budget part of it, which is not particularly something I care much for, but <laughs> it's a necessity, so I get it. Uh, and then just also just being more able just to represent the companies just outside, just doing more in tasting events and um, pouring events or just doing interviews with journalists and all that. Just mm -hmm. obviously something I didn't do at the beginning and I'm doing more now. Mm -hmm. I'm not the best person to talk about wine, so I was really not that, uh, yeah, not that disappointed when I couldn't taste with a, a wine writer or anything. It's like just, I'd rather be left alone, <laughs> but it's kind of the necessity of the job now, so. I can appreciate that. I can appreciate it's, that. It's, I am, it's funny because my husband is always just telling me, it's just like, you like just to be around people. It's like, I might like to be around people, but I'm not a, a talker. I'm not a people person. Like, I don't just necessarily need just to talk to them about wine. And I hate just having to talk about wine. Again, it's just like, you drink it, you like it, you don't like it. I really don't mind if you don't tell me why, or just I can direct you. But I don't want just to describe a wine or ask me a technical question, I'll answer as much as you want. 
but writing tasting notes, Brian knows about it because every time we've asked to write tasting notes, like here you go, Brian. <laughs> I couldn't care less if it tastes of if you smell like pear or white flower. It's just really not that important to me. <laughs> you mentioned one of the responsibilities that you've kind of grown into is, is working more with the clients directly. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. You have a, a lot of different, like you mentioned, a lot of different clients coming from a lot of different backgrounds with a lot of different kind of expectations. Mm -hmm. Tell me about ma managing those expectations and about producing a quality product for all of those different. All of them. All of um, them. I mean, it's very important to understand what they like. Or, and it really depends again on the client. The small clients who have their small tasting room and they're selling the wine direct um, and they do it themselves, uh, they need a lot more guidance, they need a lot more uh, support. And, and so that is just, I love just talking to them about just the different blends we're making for them, trying to understand what works for their customers, what doesn't, what they what they like, what they don't like. Because some customers, you just some of our clients, you realize that they like cab, but yet they were making Pinot for them. And it's like, okay, well, we need to change a little bit the style of how we make the wine for you guys. Um, the bigger customers is just making sure we're doing what, what they want to do and that's just at the end of the day that we're following their protocol and reassuring them that yes, we're following their protocol. Yes, we might just frown upon it sometimes, just saying like, are you sure you want us to do that? But okay, uh, we have really good relationship with them. Mm -hmm. uh, I do like to tease a couple of them because I will question it. It's just like sometimes it's just whatever they want to do seems a little crazy. So I really want to push and understand why they want to do it. But that doesn't mean we won't do it. I'll do it. It's just no problem. I'm just, uh, just want to know why. Are there limits to that for you uh, in terms of how much you will or won't do no. for a client? No. It's wine. There's nothing illegal. There's nothing, you know, it's just like if they want to add five grams of acid in their wine, it's there's their choice. It's, they're professional. It's uh, that's what they want. If, if they want to add acid, remove acid, add acid, remove acid in the same wine several times in throughout the vintage, it is totally fine. It's like, no, there's no limit. We just don't put our foot down. It's like, it's their wine, their decision. When it comes to the wine you're producing for the Northwest Wine Company labels, for your own, own mm -hmm. labels, tell me what your, what your kind of, uh, the ideal wine is for you. What, what, what is the style you're going for here? Mm -hmm. and, and what is it that you're portraying in, in, in the, the Selena and the Westmount and those types of brands? It's, it really depends on the brand. We definitely have different identities, different just uh, public that we're just uh, trying to custom the wine for. Um, Westmount, we're just going for um, a serious wine, but just really easy to drink. Something that is really Willamette Valley, so fresh, aromatic, um, but pleasant. Something that you can just pour at in, in any occasion, but at the same time not take too seriously. Mm -hmm. Like it's um, Selena is just definitely its own style. It's a lot bigger, darker. It's a bigger wine. I don't want to say the image of Laurent, but it's definitely just like something that is richer. It's it's more generous. That's Laurent's style. He likes just something that is um, uh, lush is not a good word, but you know, just 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 a bigger, richer style in general. Uh, Highland, I find just it's. It's a lot more restrained. I would say it's probably more my style. Like I, I just put up more of my personality in making Highland, um, more acid-driven wine, um, 
a little bit more delicate in the, in the sense that I don't mind if the wine is underwhelming at first. I just want elegance first. I just, um, it takes a bit more time, but I think it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's a different type of, of public that drinks it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then we have just several other brands like Kudos, some, some uh, lower uh, price brands. And in these wines, it just needs to be a good wine. Mm -hmm. We just want to have fruit to have the proper structure to make sure that people won't complain about anything, that it's, it tastes like Oregon, it tastes like Pinot, and that's really all we're going for. Mm -hmm. And vintage identity too. It's something we've been struggling with, um, making sure we keep the identity of the vintage, and, but at the same time understanding that people won't understand it. Um, it's hard because we don't sell the wines directly, it goes to big distributors everywhere. It's just like I think we distribute in 48 states. Um, so we don't know what people think, and reading the comments sometimes, something you should never do. Do not go read comments, people living on websites about your wine. It is terrible. Uh, and sometimes it's like, oh, they really did not like that wine. But then I just realized like, well, they probably don't like Pinot. They just want something different. And, and it's fine, but it's harsh. It's hard just to, to try to please everyone. But that's what we're trying to do, just trying to please everyone. You talked about for your own personal palate that, that Oregon wines were an adjustment for you. So mm -hmm. tell me about, have, has your palate adjusted to Oregon wine or have you started kind of adjusting the Oregon wines more to fit what you want to do? No, I adjusted to Oregon wine. It's, it's, I'm definitely going back to, tasting back some Burgundy wine now, I just find them just to be bright and just, and just to be honest, I'm, um, I love to drink wine, but only when I eat. So I don't really drink a glass of red wine by itself. Uh, and that's something that you can't do with Burgundy wine. Like it's very just unpleasant to drink a Pinot from Burgundy just by the glass. And when here I've just been learning to enjoy just a Pinot by itself. I still don't really do it that much, but it was not just all about just finding the right balance. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like all Pinots from Oregon. I still just like a Pinot just to be a little bit lower in alcohol and um, I mean, not lower, but it's just like the 14 and a half, 15% that sometimes are put out is just way too much. I like them to be more, more delicate, more, uh, more fruit driven. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But no, I must definitely adapt it to them. I've not warmed up to Pinot Gris. That's only the one thing, still not a thing. Just, uh, <laughs> we make a lot of it, but uh, yeah. Won't drink it anytime soon. Well, and you mentioned that Pinot, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were the things that really drew yeah. you in, but now you're making other things. So mm -hmm. tell me about that too, about working with Riesling and, and Cab oh, and, yeah. and Pinot Gris and other things like that. Uh, Pinot Gris was just a novelty. I didn't know what it was. And it's a different, it's a different way of treating, of making the wine just because of the color the skin has. So um, yeah, it took, me, it took me a couple of years to understand just fully how to do it. But at the same time, it's a very forgiving grape. So when you know how to make Chardonnay, just you can make decent Pinot Gris and then just you learn how to make it better. Um, Riesling was an adjustment. First vintage with Riesling was 2012 and it's probably the worst Riesling just uh, one has ever drank from uh, <laughs> from Highland. It was just, yeah. I made just Riesling like I was making Charlie, which is a higher temperature and um, yeah, did not, did not turn out well. We did a, a blind tasting a couple of years ago of all the Riesling from Highland and 12 was yeah, noticeably worse. Noticeably, that kid was the least favorite of everyone. And it's like, yeah, mm -hmm, I remember that. <laughs> Never made Riesling in my life. Had a very vague idea of just how to make it. And you know, making white wine is making white wine, but not exactly. It had no flavor, did not taste like Riesling, which is very flabby. And uh, just because I fermented too warm, 
did not realize, did not think about it, did not think about putting the cooling on or anything. Uh, so yes, that was a little bit of an adjustment. It was a learning curve. I'm really proud of the Riesling now, which is making just, as soon as I realized my mistake, the switch was after fermentation was over, it's like, oh, yes, cool fermentation. Now I know why. <laughs> Makes sense. So yeah, Riesling, diverse terminer, just like, yeah, there's definitely winemaking technique for each varietal. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's really my fault. That's me just being so focused on making Chardonnay and Pinot that there was just really nothing else. Um, except for Cab. I've always liked Cab too, so I did pay close attention in school about how to make Cab and Merlot. That was still just something I was interested in. Uh, so I did follow the proper protocols just here. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, white wine, just, it's so different. <laughs> we, on any given year, we process 13 to 15 different varietals at the winery. The majority of it being Pinot, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Riesling. But then we have three tons of something, two tons of Viognier, a little bit of Masca, a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc and all that. So uh, yeah, it keeps you on your toes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we'll talk about 2020 a little bit because obviously that was a pretty interesting year mm -hmm. for everybody. Uh, tell us, first of all, let's talk about the, the COVID the pandemic. Um, how did it affect you and your wine life and, and how did you see it affect the industry? Uh, production side, it did not, fortunately, so we were lucky enough to be considered an essential worker because we can't just stop making wine and the vineyard does not stop growing just because of COVID. Um, so we continued working. Um, we changed our schedule a little bit, so everyone that was that could work remotely in the winery just was sent home. Um, winemaking team could not work remotely, so we were still on site, just a lot more spread out. Mm -hmm. uh, alternating schedule with anyone just in the same office would not work at the same time. Mm -hmm. Brian and I would just taste in opposite side of a room and all that. Just harvest was the hardest. Just four of us tasting every day, and just we had just to figure out where to taste pulling samples twice instead of once because we couldn't taste in the same glasses and all that when typically we share one glass for winemakers. Mm -hmm. um, so that was just different logistic. Uh, the work itself, we were a big winery and only seven employees. So it was easy just to keep people apart from each other and just to say, well, you're just going to be racking your barrels here and you're going to be just filtering over there. Just making sure people were just staying more apart than usual. Mm -hmm. Uh, what was hard was the lack of social interaction mm -hmm. and of course it was hard for anyone but we love to cook at the winery we always have lunch at some point um, we we always end up gathering just having a glass of wine doing something which we didn't do obviously um, and then when the harvest came that was just definitely the worry was just someone would get sick, we would have to just shut down. Something would happen in the middle of harvest. Um, so we just set up just different protocols. We came up with a, a team concept. So we bought a bunch of vests, you know, just a high-vis vest, but different color. And we're just grouping people by pods, just saying like, you're allowed just to hang out with your pod, have lunch with your pod, just do things just together. Um, making sure that just there was no crossover, but that each pod was replaceable by another one if one had to be taken out mm -hmm. somehow. Just some cross-training here and there. Mm -hmm. And it worked out fine. Um, we did have to interrupt production a little bit at the end of harvest. Um, unfortunately, an intern just uh, came down with COVID. Then we had to send everyone home, really, because 
That was at the end when people were a bit more relaxed, so we were not sure exactly of how the pod had been working and how... So um, that was just left uh, Bruno, Laurent and I were the only one left at the winery, so we dug, Laurent dug a tank as I was pressing it and we worked uh, in the cellar, just the two of us, for a couple of days. It was just a little surreal. <laughs> Um, I remember just calling Laurent, it's like, uh, Laurent, you ready to dig out a tank of cab? It was Selena's cab. He's like, well, sure. It's like, we couldn't just let it sit. We didn't know we were going to be shut for 10 days. We couldn't just stop everything. So, yeah, he and I. Amazing. That was, uh, it was, it was fun. Just, you know, just that, that surreal thing. It's just, it's night and you just, the two of us just working in the press. Bruno just walking in, looking at us at a distance, just like saying, you guys, just what are you doing? It's like, well, we don't have any interns, no employees. Everyone's been sent home and our tests came back negative. We know we were not in contact with that intern, so we could work and yeah. So it was challenging, but in a good way somehow. It forced us to to revisit some protocols and to come up with new concepts and all that. Mm -hmm. But for the industry in general, I know obviously during Harvest especially, you're pretty focused on what yeah. you're doing here, but what did you what did you sense from the industry as they were dealing with, with COVID and, and kind of the reaction to it? Well, there was, there was a bit of a mixed bag in reaction, and for, mostly on the hospitality side, obviously. Um, some people decided to never reopen their tasting room, and some people decided just that, hey, we're just gonna do curbside pickup mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we're just going to work more online and that's the approach that our team took they, they just went all out and just trying just to sell wine even though people could not taste um, we definitely just like anyone just uh, took on some um, habit of just doing zoom meeting zoom tasting clients could not come we just send samples and send and taste through zoom which we still do because we don't really have visitors coming uh, so we, we changed definitely just the way we do things we had to cancel all kind of wine events opc the auction all the charnet technical tasting like all the events that we have in the valley throughout the year had to be canceled and then just we ended up just doing a few online just, mm -hmm. just um i mean it, it, it's a bit of a shame but it's all gonna go back to normal like if we don't do charnet technical tasting for two years then that's fine we're just gonna have that much more fun next time we'd have one i mean seriously it's just it's hard because yeah we tend just to be a fairly uh, tight-knit group and just to see each other all the time and talk to each other all the time and we don't really anymore um i have a really close friend a group of um of winemakers friends just uh they're just all women and we just happened to meet one day and just we kept going and just yeah we're just doing everything online it's just it's not as much fun but it works um i feel bad for all these small wineries that just did not try to push um their sales just outside of just their tasting room because at the end it worked out we've just we've been able to sell wine just as much if not more than before and just through all the effort that our team just put and just they they went out there they just they mm -hmm. try to sell they just you know cold call and all that mm -hmm. uh, and if that's one thing that we all know is that people kept drinking during covid so they were stuck at home with their families of course they kept drinking <laughs> yeah the other, obviously, the other part of 2020 uh, was the, the fires around harvest and the mm -hmm. smoke around harvest. So tell, tell me about that from your perspective and, and how that affected your work. Oh, we just changed this. It's, yeah, it changed everything. It changed the whole harvest. Um, COVID was going to be our biggest worry. And as soon as the smoke started, just like we knew that that was going to be the, the next biggest worry. Um, knew nothing about smoke. Within two days of having that big, thick uh, smoke everywhere, Laurent was just 
printing out just research documents from Australia and just everything that has been done and we just started reading about it and starting putting together just plans of microferments and just trying to figure out do we have a smoke issue do we are we just worried about it for no reason mm -hmm. um, and we realized really soon that we were going to have a smoke issue ETS was backed up so we did not have any chance just to start just mm -hmm. testing it mm -hmm. so it was just uh, just um, perspective uh, perception sorry uh, but then just the we quickly also decided that we we're gonna pick no matter what so we picked everything we didn't drop the only vineyard we didn't pick was just a vineyard that had insurance and they were like we'd rather take the insurance than just have to have issues later on um, and the was like no we're bringing the wine and we'll figure it out um, which you know was a little ballsy but I just uh, I'm not saying it's paying off yet, but we're just going to be able to to make a decent wine. Uh, yeah, everything is affected. It just it, there's so much more work. Been doing so many trials. Um, we decided also really on that. We're just like if we treat the wine, we need to do it as juice because every time everyone was saying like you will strip the wine if you do it later. And I have a lot of experience with dealing with affected fruit just really early in the season uh, so we knew like Pinot Gris that is just that has a lot of issue even just when they come to the winery and I knew that just treating them early just has a lot higher there's a, a way better chance just to clean up the wine without just creating any damage to the, like longer damage to the wine so um, anyway so we went for it I just did some flotation on red wine which is not something that everyone's like it, it won't work you can't float red wine it's like well I just need to try and it works just like cleaning up the wine early on just lining up just tanks everywhere treating with carbon and milk and all kind of things just because I was like I don't want to be left at the end of harvest realizing that oh shoot we just can't do anything anymore I'd rather just try now mm -hmm. and and just see if it works and it created just like twice three times the work but um, I'm pretty happy with what we have now. We're still dealing with it, you know. Just we're still just trying to clean up the wine right now, and uh, but but we'll make some good wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of sort of for the future for yourself, what what have you learned from this dealing with this kind of, this kind of harvest? What what, mm -hmm. what what are you going to be prepared for if it happens again? Well, if it happens again, definitely know now which product, which dose, what to use early on. You know, just um, it was. There's so little done in terms of um, research and publication and that we just didn't really know how to deal with it. Like we had a general idea, but that's it. Now I'm just way better documented and just mm -hmm. I know what to use, I know when to do it, just to do early on. Mm -hmm. um, it's still no matter what would be a challenge. I don't think just any event of smoke will be able just to clean it up and just do it in a more efficient way, but it's not just gonna be an issue. I don't think we can remove the problem altogether. Um, so it's probably just a bit less stress if that happens again, um, which might happen. Just this year, we're already starting to see some little fires here and there in very dry weather in April, which is mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a, this is a very interesting April. There's no question about it's, that. Yeah, very strange. Like the first time I just heard just about just fires, like a couple of days ago. You know, it's like, is that April really? Like we have a humidifier. Uh, what is called a um, hygrometer in our house and just seeing at 32% in the house like what is that it's April it's Oregon it should be pouring rain right now <laughs> <laughs> so 
So we talked about we talked a bit about kind of your early impressions of, or, of the Oregon wine industry. What what are the changes you've seen in the industry as you've been a part of it? What 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 is what about the industry has changed, and, and what does it kind of stand today? Um. So in almost 15 years, the main difference that I've I've found is just it's becoming less and less little mine pods, just small vineyards, just some farmers that decided to start growing grapes just because people were starting growing grapes and they found that that was a good opportunity. It's becoming more and more professional, mm -hmm. um, for good and for bad. Um, it's nice to have people who know what they're doing, but it was also nice just to help along just farmers just trying to figure out how to grow grapes. I thought that was just pretty nice just yeah just visiting all this vineyard that I got a chance to visit it was nice to talk to people and they always had questions they always wanted to show you their vineyards like do you do you think we should do it this way or that way just like they were so proud of it of uh, the accomplishment just of just you know going from wheatgrass or yeah or just any kind of seed grass to vineyard that was just a big change as opposed to having bigger companies coming knowing what they're doing and planting vineyard there's a little bit less salt to it mm -hmm. Uh, that being said, it's all good no matter what, just the industry is growing, uh, we're just making more and more wine, Oregon's starting just to be more known. The quality of wine in general is improving just because, you know, it's being pulled from the top. Um, a lot of people just coming from Washington and California and same thing, it's just like, you can just frown a little bit just in California and moving in, but they know what they're doing and it can only elevate the, the industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What, what, what is the industry going to look like in the coming years? Well, definitely more Californians. As the fires are just settling in down there, just like we see them coming, we see a lot more requests from people just to, to buy grapes and all that. Um, which again, I don't see any issue. Uh, more French buying companies. That can only be good. Uh, but seriously, just like bringing a little bit of the old world and, and they see the opportunity because there's so much to be done, but they're bringing the experience at the same time in a different approach to wine. Um, you know, just since I've been here, Louis Jadot came, uh, Jean-Nicolas Meocamusée, like all these just French winemakers just coming in and just bringing their experience. And it's not like they make this better wine, but they make different wines. They're just exposing the industry to other ways. and. Um, and I do, I mean, I do like just that mixed culture. Uh, I can't, Oregon would not be interesting to me if there was not a little bit of French here and there. There's just, I like just that, that mix of ideas and that, uh, and we're always arguing, you know, like we like to do things a certain way. And then the Americans are like, well, why would you do it this way? It's like, it's because we want to, and we know better. Uh, it's just, it, it's fun. So I just think that the, yeah, the industry would definitely gonna be seeing a lot more vineyards, a lot more mass production vineyard. Um, there's gonna be probably a lot of cheaper wine from Oregon coming, which is not a bad thing either. Just one of the hard things right now is just Oregon wines are so expensive, so people don't don't get to know it. Um, and at the same time, we're also gonna see just a lot better wines, like which is the high-end wines are going to explode. We'll see a lot more sparkling, I'm assuming. Uh, even though just the climate's getting a little warmer, but uh, we're making more sparkling now and it's been fun and we might just, my dream would be to see a bit less Pinot Gris, but that's just, so that's just me. <laughs> just other varietal, just, just different wine, different.
What about for you personally, as you look ahead for your future? What, what do you see for yourself, for your work here and, and, and perhaps beyond? Um, I, don't, I don't know. That's always a joke that I have with Robert, our general managers, because in France, when you go and start for a company, typically you will retire in that company. Like it's you just really, you work somewhere and you stay there. And that's kind of the attitude I have. I don't just, I don't plan on doing anything else. I'm not, I've been toying with the idea of just making my own wine. And it's like, do I really need to? I've got, I'm making just 250 wines here. Why do I need to make my own wine? I don't like to sell. I don't like to go around sell wine to people. So it's like, there's no reason for it. Just like I have the chance to make so many wines here. That's all I care about. Um, so really it's just, uh, my, uh, my goal in life would be to, uh, to be the next person to solve the smoke issue. That's just, uh, <laughs> it's like if I can find an actual solution. No, but uh, joking aside, just continuing improving just winemaking mm -hmm. and taking one vintage at a time. And just maybe one year when I'm old enough, I won't really have just uh, to be worried about anything. I'll just be like, bring me your next challenge. I'll make you great wine out of it. That would yeah. be a cool business philosophy. I like that. Oh, yeah, but at the same time, it's like, you know, that's the thrill of harvest. Like, what are you going to have this year? What? Like, even an easy harvest is not an easy harvest, you know? It's just like, you still need to make the wine. Like, I want just to be able to just... That, yeah, that would be great to know that every year I'm just going to just hit it and just make 100-point wine. You know, that's the thing. Just no matter what, give me anything. I'll make the most perfect wine. It's really not realistic. <laughs> uh, but I'll just... Uh, that would be my challenge, just working at it. Mm -hmm. And what about the what about the, the, the company here? What what do you see in the future for Northwest Wine? What what are your kind of plans or projects for the future? Well, so we we purchased a vineyard in uh, Red Hill of the Douglas County last year, mm -hmm. which is a uh, 250 acres planted. So our next uh, challenge is going to be just to make wine out of that vineyard. Just uh, Bruno is working on just uh, rehabilitating the vineyard. It's been a little abandoned for the past few years. Um, we are just expanding. We're just gonna build a new extension to the winery next year and starting a little bit this fall and just adding 2,000 tons to uh, what we're doing. So yeah, just the challenge would be just to be able to continue making wine and, uh, and mostly just that the great thing I like just about working here is just like it's not because we're becoming bigger than we're just paying less attention. Mm -hmm. It just it's then that's one I think is just important. I've been here for a long time now. It's just being able to keep adding to it and just knowing that just yeah, you can keep adding wine. I'm still just going to be paying as much attention. It's never going to be mass production. We're still going to just be keeping it just like know each individual tank and just be close to, the, to it. And that's one one thing that with our size, I find it's probably not that common in a lot of wineries is. As a winemaker, I still get to go and use the filter from time to time. When one of my guys is sick or can't make it, I'll just go and do it. Just like, I'll go rack some barrels if I have to. I'm not saying it happens all the time. It rarely happens, but I still do it. And I want to make sure that I never stop doing it. I want to be able to move barrels when I have to. And because that's just, that's why I'm doing it. I like to do the job. Now I understand I can't do the job every day. I have just to also do more managing than just do actual work. And again, I can't complain. I love just doing it. I wouldn't want just to be working in the cellar every day or cleaning tank every day, but I want to make sure I still know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that the guys see me doing it and that they know that I just, I value the work, that it's not just about just giving them a list of stuff to do and that's it. Like 
and that's what I think just makes it's a it's a big part of just working for Northwest it's just like you know every step and you're able to pick up a hose and rinse out a tank when you need to mm -hmm. uh, and I'm hoping that as we're expanding our facility that we're still able to do it mm -hmm. that we never lose that that focus like I know that I started working in the wine industry because I started just removing leaves on a vine not because I just went to school and decided like oh I want to make wine like that's gonna be my next thing you know it's just like just doing the doing the work and just still knowing how to do it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's just bringing back to that that week of harvest last year where we didn't have anyone just single rod just jumping into a tank grabbing a shovel and shoveling a tank and he did it in such a short time because I was timing him we were just making sure he was just uh, he had a record to be and, and I was like oh my gosh you did it in just like half the time that any of my 20 year old intern who will complain about how sore their back is after and just like yeah just like you can still do it just um, driving a forklift dumping food in the you know just like all these little things just like never forgetting about it and you took video of this I hope for the archives I could not yeah. I was just driving the forklift can't drive and text you know that <laughs> no, I had a picture of his boots <laughs> in the tank just looking at him that's fantastic uh, so one last question for you uh, we're gonna go a little philosophical for you here what is the role of wine in society oh I know I've told myself that's like what if one day there's no more wine <laughs> what would I do I don't know um, I mean coming from the old world just like it's wine has its place just like on the table just like bread has its place on the table it just it's part of history it's um it's been through millennia people have been drinking wine and and i don't care much for the intoxicating part of the wine um i wish personally that there was no alcohol if i could i would have wine without alcohol it's just the the culture behind it just the and I, and I don't think people just understand it as much here how important wine is until you just you're in Europe and you just it's everywhere and you drink it and you have it on your table and you're 10 year old and your dad's just giving you a little bit of wine it's like hey do you want to taste and never making it a big deal but always making it a big deal at the same time it's like you have to have wine there's no you can't just not have a family dinner without wine uh, but at the same time it's just like well let's not drink until we just can't taste anymore it's just like it's all in moderation and um, and each wine has its story even if you just buy the two euro bottle at the store you know it's just like you just know which region it's from it has a different taste it's like there's so much so much science so much history so much memories just behind wine that just uh i don't know really i never really thought that much about it except that that thought crossed my mind just recently because of that bill that they were just trying to pass mm -hmm. in oregon it's mm -hmm. like what if there was no more wine it's mm -hmm. like what would we do uh, so yeah, hopefully we won't get to that point. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I'll ferment anything. <laughs> Otherwise, rebarb anything. I'll just make wine. Oh, and another thing, just uh, and I know it's being a little picky, but just yeah, for wine, for me, wine is only from grapes, you know, and just like, and that's just, and it's a really big thing. Just I don't know, there's something about just the history of fermenting grapes that just other fruit don't have really. I'm sure some culture would just disagree, but at least just there's grapes all around the world and there, there's, I don't know, there's something special about it. But at the same time, I don't think wine has ever been the origin of a war or anything, you know, it's just, uh, it's not one of these products. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a fair point, I like that. 
that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything? That I, was the last question. Is there anything I didn't <laughs> anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Uh, no, I feel like I've probably talked a lot about my whole life. Yeah, you know everything now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hide anything, so no, nothing really. Thank you so much. We really You're appreciate welcome. it. Uh, appreciate your time and your stories and your candor. You're welcome. Day. I was getting a little cold at the end, but uh, yeah. Glad we survived through. So thank you so we much. Oh, You're welcome. Go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.